whether you're a designer or a coder or front end or back end, uh, you have a, a blog of some, some sort, some sort of personal blog where you can write articles and you can write about your experiences. And if you can show through that you can write and maybe you're doing tutorials even, just because a potential client could look at you um, and look at the things you've done and the articles you've written, maybe their YouTube videos, and that will go a long way in, in, in helping sell you Hello coders, welcome to the Scrimba podcast. I'm your host, Alex Booker from Scrimba, and today I'm joined by Gary Simon. If you know about Gary, which wouldn't really surprise me that much, then you will know about him as a designer, a developer, and teacher here at Scrimba. Another way of looking at Gary is as a highly successful self-employed person, and it all started with freelancing. So I invited Gary onto the podcast to talk about the basics of starting as a freelance designer or developer in 2021. I think you're going to enjoy hearing about Gary's story as well because he started freelancing at a fairly young age, managed to build a business earning $3,000 a month, which is not a small amount of money by any means, but later in this episode, you'll hear him describe grossing around $100,000 a year, which is a phenomenal amount of income for any self-employed person. Together, we want this to be one of the best, most actionable resources for anyone looking to get started freelancing. We broke it down step by step, starting with the responsibilities of a freelancer so you know what to expect going in. We spoke about some specific examples of where you can find your first clients as a freelancer and how to market yourself and stand out. We also spoke about pricing yourself, you know, should you charge per hour or per project? Can a contract help protect you? And when that contract starts, what are the keys to making sure that project goes smoothly so that you meet or better yet exceed your client's expectations? I had a lot of fun talking with Gary. He's got a lot of knowledge to share, having been in the industry for over two decades. And just to close things off, I threw some quick fire questions his way, which you can look forward to. But with all that said, let's get into it. To motivate people through the episode and help them understand why you got started with freelancing, can you tell us a little bit about how freelancing and being your own boss impacted your life? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, my dad, I, he wasn't a freelancer per se, but he was, it was a one man show. Um, and I wanted that for myself. And I, when I was able to be, become, you know, basically self-sufficient, I could pay the bills, um, buy my freelance work. It was excellent because, you know, all the positives, there's some negatives of freelance, but the positives, um, you know, you get to, you get to work when you want, essentially. Um, I, I get to, I could do things with my wife. Um, and then later on with my kids, I could drop things. I don't have to sit behind uh, a desk for, you know, eight hours, nine hours straight. Um, and th those were the, the biggest, you know, being able to set my own uh, timelines and also determining who I want to work with uh, were huge benefits. Let's talk about getting started then. And I think a good way to set the stage is, can you talk about what the responsibility of being a freelancer looks like. If you're not working under the typical relationship where you have a boss and they're feeding you with the work, you're going to have to know marketing. You know, you're going to have to get your name out there. It doesn't happen organically. You could be one of the greatest designers or coders in the world, 
But if no one knows about you, of course, you're going to you're going to have to have the responsibility of marketing yourself and putting putting yourself out there. So that's one of the unique responsibilities that you're going to have in order to, to actually have a career and make enough money to pay the bills and so on. Um, so that's one of the primary responsibilities. Of course, another one is dealing with clients, uh, really trying to make sure you up, uphold your end of the bargain uh, when you take on clients trying to stay on top of communication as much as possible, um, understanding dispute resolution. So those are the core responsibilities, uh, in my opinion. And of course, continuing on your education to try to better yourself if you're a designer or a coder. This sounds like a lot of responsibility. And for all the aspirational reasons to become a freelancer, I think those responsibilities can cause a bit of anxiety. How can someone listening know that they're ready right. for that responsibility? Well... In the end, if you, if you have a product and your product could be code, your knowledge or design, <clears throat> there's going to be a market for it. Um, it's really not as complex as it, as it sounds um, when we talk about responsibilities or, or scary as it sounds. If you have if you have a way to get your business out there and, and you have a client, maybe it's your very first client, things will happen naturally. You know, they want something from you, you want something from them. Uh, and it's just about opening up effective communication and trying to be mindful as possible uh, about the process. I like that positive attitude a lot. Like it probably isn't quite as scary as it seems. And hopefully we'll touch on some ways to get started. In fact, I think the biggest question that you need to answer when you're getting started is how to actually find your first customers. I imagine that things have changed over the years because you've been in this business for almost two decades, I think, doing UI design, UX and development. I did some research on like Dev.2 and browsing the web on a few popular places to find freelance work. Could I maybe throw some of the names and places people find work at you and get your first impression? What do you think about finding your first freelance work through friends and family? Yeah, that's odd. It's probably the the most popular way uh, or the easiest way that you can go about it because it's familiar. They're familiar to you. Um, and so maybe perhaps it's through word of mouth, word of mouth, rather, rather um, that you need to, somebody needs something in your family and then you can just offer up, you know, maybe they're not going to pay you the greatest, but of course, you know, it's experience. What about services like Fiverr and Upwork and People Per Hour, these kind of freelance marketplaces? What's your take on those? Initially, I was, I was a hater on Fiverr, you know, I was like, who's going to buy, who, who wants a $5 logo, you know? But of course, you know, they've matured since then. They've been around for a long time. Um, and, you know, more often than not, it's a way for, uh, you know, aspiring designers or designers to, especially in other countries where the US dollar kind of takes them further uh, in their economy. Uh, it's a way for them to, you know, they're making a lot more than $5 usually. There's, there's ways to like, you know, sell packages and stuff like that. And then plus you're able to develop a relationship, of course, uh, with these people. So that's always a positive and it's a good, it, it's a good starting point. Although in my opinion, it's, it's not the most ideal way, um, for, for finding clients and, and such, um, but yeah, it's a great way to just, you know, to use an existing marketplace 
um, where you don't necessarily need to have all this marketing knowledge or uh, right off the bat. I'm not sure if you saw it, but there was a tweet floating around uh, previously where someone, I think, designed a logo on Fiverr, which led to them designing a landing page. So from $5 to $500, when they built the whole website, it was 5000 Have you seen that tweet? I'll put it on the screen for anybody watching the YouTube video. I haven't, but I could definitely imagine. Yeah, that's a, it's just a scenario that probably plays out quite well. It played out with me as well. Mike, the core of my freelance career, I was uh, designing logos. That was it. Like it was mostly all just logos. And I ranked very well in Google for logo design related to, uh, keywords, like how to design a logo. I was number one, how to create a logo. I was number one, how to make a logo. I was number one. And, um, and really these are strange terms, right? Because they're, they're terms that people who want to search for how to making their own logos, like how did, how did, how did they end up hiring me? Well, it was a tutorial. It wasn't even a good logo design tutorial, but it ranked very well. Um, and I just put a little ad on there. It's like, well, a lot of people who want to know how to make a logo realize they can't do it. You know, it's not something you just pick up and do effectively the first time. So they hired me and I, I never talked with these people directly. Uh, they, they I, I made a little, cart on my site where they ordered a logo for like one concept for like 150 bucks. And then um, they filled out a, a form. And then I had a back end, you know, where I had all my clients. And over the course of about five to six, seven years, I designed 2000 logos. <laughs> and what's cool, just to circle back around, I also sold web design on top of that. So I was upselling them, you know, my, my other uh, services. What I'm hearing is people would aspire to design their own logo. They're like, uh, how hard can it be? I'll watch a YouTube video. And when they realized they couldn't do it, you were the obvious choice because you were there. In this case, it wasn't YouTube. It was just a written article because um, I wasn't on YouTube back then. This is back in like 2007 or so. Um, but it was still just a, as effective. I think that's so smart. And one thing that... I'm curious to get your take on is when it comes to Upwork and Fiverr, these are very competitive marketplaces. And, and like you touched on, if you're in India, $10 might be worth a lot more to you than someone in the US or Europe. So you can afford to almost race to the bottom, which probably if you want to be a sustainable long-term freelancer, that's not going to work for you. The great thing about the internet um, is the fact that there's a lot of different ways. There's just different um, avenues from which you can have a career and, and make money. Um, it's not easy to really break into any one of those areas, but you have a lot of different paths that you can choose and really focus on from the marketing perspective. You can get clients from having a really great portfolio on sites like dribble.com or behance.net. Um, you can have a great career just by having a big Twitter following, you know, maybe put all of your, your focus on building up your Twitter account, learn Twitter marketing or something like that. Or it could be, um, Instagram. If you're a designer, you know, you can show off things. For me, it was search engine optimization, you know, um, and that initial tutorial that ranked for five, six years and just generated hundreds of thousands of dollars. That wasn't even intentional. Like, well, it wasn't like me trying to rank. It just got picked up by a big social uh, bookmarking site called dig.com back in the day. And it kind of went viral and it generated all these backlinks, uh, which helped me rank. So there are so many ways, but again, you, you have to stick with it no matter which way, you know, and you're not going to break in easily. Even if it's going to Fiverr, you, you might have a, a tough time starting out, but you have to be consistent about it. And that's why I tell other people who want to get into YouTube, you got to post every week for years before you have an expectation of serious growth. 
This might be a nice segue to talk about rates and how to price your services because when I think there's probably two types of people. There are people who maybe have some savings or a part-time job on the side. They can take their time finding freelance work and maybe working at a reduced rate or even for free to build their portfolio. And then perhaps there are people who really need that income to support their house repayment, whatever it might be, right? You really need that kind of money. Are those people in a bad spot? Like, is it really hard to get freelance work without basically giving a lot in terms of building an audience or doing some pro bono work? Right. I mean, for me, I, when I started out, I was just charging $75 for one logo design concept. And I allowed people to order like additional concepts and stuff like that. And for me, it, it, my monthly income was about three thousand dollars. You know, my wife was—I uh, had just become an RN as well, so you know, our backs weren't against the wall. Our our, our house payment was like four hundred twenty-five bucks a month, so it was cheap. Um, but of course, seventy-five dollars for a logo—that's not very much either. So um, it all depends on you know how much work are you actually getting. If you're getting so much work that you have a hard time, you know, fulfilling the orders, then you're going to have to naturally raise your prices to, to, you know, or, or hire somebody else, which would, would be a, a fine idea as well. So the question about how much should you charge something for, for whatever, you know, you're worth, you can always put out, you can always test it, you know, depending on where you're getting your traffic from or your potential clients, you can, you can always just test it, you know, um, and if, if people aren't ordering or they're not coming to you, then obviously you might be, you know, priced too high. Uh, and so I just let do the natural, like the, let the market speak for itself. I like that strategy where you keep increasing your price until someone objects and then probably that's your sweet spot. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, 3000 bucks a month is a pretty healthy amount when you're starting out. Even if a logo is only 75, if you do hundreds right. over the course of a year, that's a great income. That's an awesome way of looking at it. Did you mostly focus on quite limited like i would say a logo design has a fairly limited scope maybe i'm oversimplifying it compared to perhaps a full website did you ever work on more um like connected projects like with multiple pages or something like that oh yeah um you know on the side you know when it came to the logo design stuff it wasn't even like full-time work for me even though i was getting upwards of like 25 to like 30 orders or whatever i i got really good at reading the project briefs and being able to um ascertain what people wanted and for the most part that all it required was like one logo design concept so that gave me more time in my day to to still focus on stuff like you know like i wanted to um like you know continue on with web development of course i had the clients you know who also ordered designs from me and I dealt with doing the HTML or the front, you know, the front end development stuff. I did a little bit of back end as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, it was still diverse, but my core focus back then was, you know, logo, de logo design, identity design, stuff like that. I imagine the cost could be a very like circumstantial thing based on your experience and the clients and stuff like that. But another kind of factor there is how long the project will take just to set the stage. What do you think about like charging by the hour versus charging by the project, AKA a fixed bid? I hated the idea of going per hour just because it was another, it, it was a point of friction potentially between you and the client. And 
I put my prices right out there before even I even talk to somebody. So, you know, the logo design was a flat price. I, they either take it or they leave it. Um, I even for a while, I had a site called Pro PSD, which is PSD for Photoshop document, um, where I would sell like a PSD of a homepage, uh, like a, a design, like in Photoshop um, for $600. And that included no code. Uh, it was just the, 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 the Photoshop document. Um, and then I also allowed them to on the, the website interface to choose uh, if they wanted to make the HTML CSS of it. And that was an additional amount. I forget how much it was. Um, and then also sub pages. So you could add on sub pages. So my whole philosophy is uh, I didn't want to get into a price debate with people. I didn't want to have a lot of communication with them. Like if we could keep it all just on the site as a service as much as possible, that that was best for me. And it, it worked out pretty well. So you never really had to worry about what happened if the estimate was wrong. Or if somebody disagreed with me um, or if there was a point of contention based on, oh, why would it take you that long to do X, Y, and Z? You know, I'm sure there's perfectly good justifications for going hourly. But personally, I just didn't want to deal with that. I, I viewed it as kind of like extra yeah. steps. Gary, we'll get back to talking about freelancing in just a second. I want to briefly interrupt those questions to ask you about your epic new interactive course on scrimba.com called Figma to Code. Who is the course for and what should they know about it? So it's for anyone who wants to be able to, to take a really good looking design and be able to accurately translate that design, which is just a prototype or a mock-up, to the actual browser and, and devices. Somebody who wants to be able to to take, you know, a, a mobile version, or maybe a tablet version, and a desktop version, and just code the full experience on on HTML, CSS, and a little bit of JavaScript. Scrimba is all about interactivity and getting your hands dirty. What projects can people look forward to building? So I start in kind of like a linear progression going from, you know, a really simple example of just like a card design that that is in Figma that you can view in Figma, in Figma all the way up to, you know, a much more complex layout for the final project where you have things overlapping on top of each other, you have animation, you have uh, some JavaScript requirements. Um, so we just kind of run the full gambit over about five or six different projects um, and you're challenged with each one of them to try to come up with the solutions on your own, which only Scrimba pretty much offers in terms of that, you know, that unique interactivity. And then I show you, you know, how exactly I would handle the HTML and CSS process for accomplishing and achieving all of those mockups and prototypes in the browser. Do people need to know Figma to get value from it? And if they already know some Figma, will they probably learn some new things? You don't need to know Figma out of the box. Um, I have a lesson where I show, you know, kind of how you use the Figma interface to ascertain, you know, different values that you may need to place for like margins and paddings and for topography. Um, where I don't actually work in Figma, like in the course, it's not, it's not a design course. So I'm not showing you how to design anything. You start with a finished uh, template or you know a mock-up that I created, uh, and we work from there. So you probably won't learn anything too much extra about Figma itself, as this is strictly a front-end uh, development sort of course. 
When you embarked on the more custom freelance projects, did you do a fixed bid then? Like, did you give them a figure up front and have to stick to it? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I would talk to people directly. Maybe they knew of me through message boards and forums and stuff. Mm. And, and they, 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 t- they came to me with specific projects in mind. And, and, and sometimes they would go beyond the scope of what I was offering at ProPSD. And then I would talk to them and we'd come up to some sort of, you know, agreed upon price. Um, but for the most part, you know, back then when I was doing exclusive freelancing and I wasn't into this instructing, teaching stuff, you know, people were, were ordering logos from my site and then ordering web designs, you know, from the fixed sort of price model at ProPSD. I remember when I tried freelancing, I was always very anxious to increase the price because okay, you have an hourly rate that you would happy to profit every hour, but then you have to consider things like maybe tax on top of that, costs, whether it's equipment or services you pay for. And then, yeah, having a little bit extra for when work slows down and stuff like that. So when I added up that amount, I was like, this number is ridiculous. It's so high. No one is going to pay me that much. And I was too scared to ask, actually. Um, uh-huh. Should I have been braver, do you think? It all depends on, like, for me, like, when I was trying to figure out, you know, okay, at what point can I move out, you know, uh, from my parents' house? And it, it was all, it all came down to my monthly bills. You know, what is it that I need to make? And fortunately, I was, I was already there. So my back wasn't against the wall. At the same time, you shouldn't allow that to stagnate yourself or undervalue yourself just because you're living comfortably or close to being comfortable. Um, so in the end, it doesn't hurt just to throw out a number. Most of the time, if it's a client, you're kind of worried. What if I say this number and th- they're just going to walk away entirely? I don't think that usually happens often. You can still get a back and forth and then you can start to understand what you can charge uh, clients. And of course, what you charge one client might be entirely different for another client. Uh, some, cl- some clients have a lot bigger budgets and that's kind of where I think I hurt myself potentially um, because I didn't want to talk to clients, you know, like over the phone. I was just giving everybody the same price. That's one of the big downsides of what I was doing. But for me, it was worth it because I didn't want all the interaction. I think you must, you were in a very strong position and I think it wasn't something that came overnight. Like you spent a lot of time building your brand and building trust through the logos you designed previously and selling templates to happy customers and things like that. I would love to get your take on marketing yourself and the importance of building a personal brand in just a minute. But I think to come full circle, we've spoke a little bit about getting started, how to find work, as well as um, how to price your work. Once that work actually commences, I think that it's important to manage expectations. What do you think is the key to a successful freelance relationship? I can only really speak about, you know, my experience. Um, you know, I, I built that content management system, the back end, um, and I made sure that they, that they were informed about every step of the process. You know, what, what process are we in right now? Um, and so I had like a little status thing. And every time I, I basically uploaded a, a concept, they were emailed. Um, every time I left a comment, they were emailed. Uh, every time there was a revision that was uploaded, they were emailed. So the, making sure and, and that you have effective communication throughout the entire process is so important. And also uh, 
making sure everybody is on the same page when it comes to um, the, the pro like what your requirements are, what your obligations are, and what their obligations are. Uh, so making sure all that stuff is out of the way so you can minim minimize potential conflict, that's huge. Does a contract help keep things on track in that respect? When it came to most of my projects, like the logo design clients, I didn't have like an actual contract. I kind of had like a, a terms of service that they had to agree to before they ordered and all that. I guess you could say that's kind of like a contract. Um, but obviously for bigger projects, um, outlining, you know, all the various things that you need to consider, such as um, compensation, um, your, your deadlines, uh, you know, how, how long should it take for, you know, me as the designer or the coder to um, address issues that you bring to light, you know, all that stuff ideally is in a contract and that way there's no wishy-washy, you know, there, there's no conflicts in the future, really. It can be a hard conversation to have, I think, because you are in a way setting yourself up for maybe conflict is a is a very over-the-top word to use, but it could be a debate about what you want and what they want. But surely it's better to get that right in the first place before you start the work than to run into it halfway through. Yep. Yep. That usually happens like with friends and family, you know, people who may not understand the process at all. To them, it might be like, wow, this person, this contract has all this stuff, you know, what is this? Like, am I buying a house or something? You know, uh, of course, it doesn't have to be that involved. But I, uh, yeah, it, it goes a long way just to be prepared and to prepare the client as well. Very cool. You are a master, I think, of building a personal brand. I mean, I notice your YouTube channel to this day is getting like 500 subscribers a day. That must be a great feeling. The words personal brand, I think, can mean slightly different things to different people. So there's some ambiguity there. Can you maybe define personal brand in the context of freelancing? Right. So um, a brand, uh, just to take, take a step back, you know, and, and look at it from a macro perspective, you know, a brand is visual. Uh, but it doesn't have to be. It can be. It could be a person. Uh, it could be a spokesperson. It could be something you smell. There could be smells associated with certain brands. Uh, it could be audible. So it, it's really an all-encompassing sort of term. Uh, when it comes to a somebody who's in the tech industry, who's a designer or coder, who who wants to establish their own brand, well, what does that personal? What does that mean? What does that brand mean? Well, you know, it's it's open to interpretation. Um, people can get really unique. I mean, just think about Google's brand and their logo. You know, very strange, right? But very effective because it's very unique. Uh, if if you can, you know, not everybody has to go down that route and you know have a multicolored logo or whatever. But for your personal brand, you just have to ask yourself, you know, what is it that makes you unique, and how can I put this in a way and put it together in, in sort of like a, a package that uh, personifies who I am as an individual. So you have to consider, you know, what are your colors? You know, do you have a color scheme for yourself? Uh, you don't have to necessarily. Um, could your brand be really focused on your personality? Maybe you're really unique. I mean, Dev Ed on YouTube, uh, he's a really unique guy and he puts in magic tricks in front end development, you know, tutorials. So that's a part of a brand. People realize that stuff. Me personally, I, I don't think there's anything interesting about myself. That's for sure. I think I'm just, I'm just, I, I'm hardcore in my consistency since 2014. I've been uploading like twice a week, you know, and I haven't stopped since. But um, 
So that that's, in my opinion, is what kind of what of a personal brand is. You know, find out what's unique about yourself and really try to push that as much as possible. Can I make an observation about how your brand is perceived? Sure. Yeah, because I never asked anyone. That's that's bad. That's bad of myself. <laughs> well, I think obviously the design and stuff is lovely, and you talked a lot about familiarity like by having magic tricks at the beginning you're like oh that's the guy who does magic tricks at the beginning or if the colors look a certain way right. you know starbucks is a good example of a brand i like you mentioned smell you smell the coffee you know it's starbucks kind of thing but i think you've been around so long mm -hmm. that consistency is is so important and the quality of the things you build and the depth in which you explain them if i was i think you're beyond this stage of your career freelancing but as someone looking to hire a freelancer i bet they're like wow gary knows his stuff and it's not just a fad for him he's been doing it for a long time and doing it really consistently and so that trust is there like i think your brand conveys trust okay awesome which I would imagine is quite important for anyone looking to freelance as well, right? Because if they're trying to convince someone to entrust them with a project, they would surely want to appear trustworthy. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, that's why I, I personally advocate, you know, whether you're a designer or a coder or front end or back end, uh, you have a, a blog of some, some sort, some sort of personal, you know, blog where you can write articles and you can write about your experiences. And more often than not, because that's sort of a hard thing to be consistent about. I notice people, I notice when I look at, because I do um, portfolio reviews essentially, and I do them live on my YouTube channel. Um, I, I'll notice if there's a blog section, I'll click on it and the last post was like from five years ago. <laughs> uh, so it, it's hard to keep up with, but um, if you can show through that you can write and maybe you're doing tutorials even that will build trust just because a potential client could look at you um, and look at the things you've done and the articles you've written maybe their youtube videos you know they can be multimedia uh and, and that will go a long way in, in in helping sell you as somebody who could take care of their project when someone's designing a portfolio well i think a lot of people maybe get caught up in this idea of like a universally good portfolio or personal website but probably that doesn't exist because you need to consider why you're making that website. And, and for example, if you're making a website to land an internship at a fan company, you might want to focus more on, you know, teachability or that you're always learning new things. Whereas if you're looking to become a freelancer, you probably want to focus more on, hey, look at these problems I've solved. Look at these successful outcomes I've created for businesses. So if someone, a designer or a developer or a hybrid is building their portfolio, today with the intention of attracting freelance clients what do you think are the most important things they should focus on yeah uh well number one for me you know you have to put yourself in, in the client's shoes as much as possible and so you know if you're trying to hire somebody for something what is it that you care about the most and this doesn't have to be for you know internet stuff this could be for anything like getting a deck built <laughs> or something you want to see their past work you want to see what they are capable of so for me the projects need to be the core focus, not necessarily your past education or if you went to college or whatever. For me, the most important element that you, you need to make sure is you know, central and that you're doing it right and you're presenting it well are your projects. And so if you're a designer, that's going to be easy because it's basically, it's visual. You know, you have your thumbnails and preferably they click a button, they're able to go to a live website and not just some sort of, you know, also preferably they're not 
things like COVID-19 trackers. I see a lot of aspiring developers and stuff put COVID-19 uh, trackers or whatever on there. But I understand you, you don't have much work. Um, but if you're, you have to think though, if you're really trying to get work and somebody's, you know, looking at all these other developers portfolios, cause very seldom are, a, is a person just going to look at yours only, you know, they're, they're comparing you against other people. They're going to, they want to see real projects that are live, uh, in the browser, preferably. That's the primary aspect. Testimonials from previous clients, very important thing that you can add. The more detail that you add for each project, like case studies, I know it's a lot of work, but that goes a long way. So it justifies the work, in my opinion, to try to, you know, really go into detail, uh, write an article essentially about each project that you have, and then making it very easy to contact you, you know, get a hold of you. Some of these uh, portfolios I see, all they have is like a, a link at the bottom. It's just it's. They click on it and it's like a mail to, you know, so it opens up their email client and that's it. It's like you need to have an actual form on your site. You should have a phone number as well as an email. So give them multiple ways to contact you, make it as easy as possible. Definitely. Here's a question. People often, I see this all the time, they have little skill, <laughs> like either a list of skills on their website or dare I say it, like a skill bar. Right. Okay, it sounds like to me, you would prioritize projects and then testimonials. Where in the hierarchy of a website would you put skills, if anywhere? Well, it's funny you mention that because I think I actually uploaded a video about one thing that you shouldn't do on your portfolio. And it was the progress bar thing, uh, where you rate yourself. And it's it's nice for the client, obviously, to know where you sit where your skills sit in relation to each other, but I think uh, you should do it differently. Uh, I, I, I'm not a fan of the progress bars because somewhere in those list of skills that you have, there's going to be one that has the lowest, you know, logically. Uh, and to them, maybe they need that the most. So I wouldn't be advertising like I'm only 33% efficient at, you know, Laravel or, you know, PHP or, or UI design, you know, whatever it is. I, instead, I think you can kind of generalize it more. Uh, you can mention what you do, obviously, and what you're proficient at, but I, I wouldn't do it in a progress bar format. And in terms of where it ranks or where it should go on your, your site, you know, I mean, these, these things are a little bit nitpicky. I mean, ultimately, somebody's interested and you have a good hero section, you know, the first thing a person sees and you have good ad copy. I, uh, they're going to scroll down and they're going to see these things naturally. But I think projects probably makes most sense to have that first to feature your actual work. And then whatever you want to put after that is kind of up to you. Let's talk a little bit about tech, because I think you've been doing this for a while and you've probably seen almost every trend in technology come and go and some come back again. How should freelancers think about their technology stack? Right. Well, in simple, you don't know where it's going to go. It, it's kind of like, it's kind of like crypto, you know, I mean, you can, you can invest some money in Bitcoin or one of these other ones, but you're just kind of hoping things happen and they don't always happen that way. So the way you kind of uh, just future proof yourself and your skills and your relevance is to just keep on learning. If you're a developer, follow the different dev communities out there, you know, get get a pulse, get a feel, you know, um, that could be on Twitter, that could be Reddit, that could be dev.2. Uh, just understand what's happening within your niche. 
Um, and if you're a designer, of course, you can, you know, go to sites like Behance and Dribble and other design communities and just, just try to keep up on the education. I didn't do that and I kind of got bit. And when I mean I didn't do that, I mean that in the sense of uh, marketing. Yeah. I, I always just thought, I'm going to rank number one in Google forever for those terms. And that didn't happen. And so I got complacent. Don't get complacent in your marketing and also don't get complacent in terms of the skills you're, you're learning and you're teaching yourself. You don't have to spend 12 hours a day, you know, on this stuff, but don't do what I did initially. Cause I got, I got too, so comfy. I was making a hundred thousand dollars over a year back when I was doing the low design stuff and I wasn't even working full time. But I wasn't really doing anything else like, you know, to, to further my marketing. So I really learned a big a lesson from that. What did that decline look like, if you don't mind my asking? Was it a gradual thing, like boiling the frog, or was it more sudden? It was it was obvious from one m month and then the next month, you know, I lost like fifteen percent. So it wasn't a massive drop, but it kept dropping for about a period of about eight months. So it gave me a little bit of time to start figuring out what am I going to do from here? Because these, these tutorials aren't ranking anymore. And if anybody knows anything about search engine optimization, it's, it could be a long process. It's, 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 it could be difficult. So it's not something that you can just, you know, fix overnight. And so I didn't fix it. Fortunately, another opportunity came by, um, where I did have a YouTube channel starting in 2010, but I very rarely uploaded. Uh, somebody saw it though. Uh, some of the tutorials I uploaded, there was like four or five or six tutorials. It was in Vado Network, uh, Toots Plus, TustPlus.com, which still exists today. They contacted me to start recording courses for them. And so they paid me like 2,500 bucks to, to create, um, like a course per month. And that was like, that's how I got into teaching and such. One more thing on the topic of tech is about websites like Squarespace, which are like template-based websites. They have UI builders. You can create pages for local businesses, essentially using their service. And if you need something more custom, there's now an uptick in no-code tools like Webflow. What's your take on these? And should freelancers be worried about these up-and-coming tools? I actually know somebody locally. I was in a band with him when I was in my teens. Um, he has his own kind of like a it's not exclusively like a web design business or anything like that. He, he does multiple things, but one of the things that he does is handle local uh, business websites and he uses Wix as his platform. Uh, I'm not even sure if he knows HTML and CSS very much, but I, should you be afraid? Well, they're out there. People are using these no code platforms. They're making a living. So they're obviously taking some of the potential clients away from you. But should you be afraid? No, I really don't think so because the internet in the marketplace for these sort of things is big enough for everybody to coexist. And there's always going to be clients who need something more than any of those node code solutions can offer. So as long as you can really hone your, your skill and you can offer something ab above and beyond, um, what those, you know, they're, they're, they're not, they're not very expensive, obviously, for the, for the, the business owners. Um, Yes, as long as you can offer something that's of a, a, a benefit over those, then you'll be just fine.
All right, Gary, this is the part of the podcast where we throw some quick fire questions your way. Are you up for it? No, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> What's harder, design or code? That's, that's an impossible question. Uh, you're gonna force my hand. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna speak from personal experience. Code. Dark mode or lights mode? Dark. According to YouTube, you get 500 new subscribers every day. In just a few words, how does that make you feel? Great. And... It's just great, yeah, that's it. What is your proudest YouTube video to date? How, um, it was a logo design course, which is crazy because I really don't cover logo design, but it has the most views by like, a, it has like a, almost 2 million views. That's insane. Which video do you think deserves more views on your channel that maybe didn't perform as well as you would have hoped? Videos about kind of the topics that we talk about. I don't do this very much, this sort of thing, because I'm always showing just like how to design or how to do stuff. But I, I, I do have a few of those out there and they're not usually that popular. So yeah, those ones, the ones that have to deal with business side of things. Who is someone lesser known that everybody listening should follow on Twitter if they're interested in web or design? I know one of up and comer, Florin Pop, he's, he's pretty good. Yeah, he actually started a Discord server for YouTube creators. So me, Brad Traversy, and about like 100 other or 200 other uh, YouTubers in the space, we all get to talk with each other, which is pretty cool. Oh, sick. I think D Thompson Dev told me about that when him and I spoke a few yep. months ago. Same. Wicked. Yep. Damn, I need to get into that group. Finish the sentence, please, Gary. My favorite UI design trend is... A current trend or of, of the past any. or any? Flat design. Comes and goes, don't you think? Yeah, getting away from all... It, 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 it was just a... So many people overused effects. And that was a return to like simplicity, or not a return, but it was a new direction of simplicity. All right, then lastly, how do you feel about gradients in just two words? I have three words, use with care. I like that. Gary, that was so much fun, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me for sure.